0: One and a half centuries ago, Henry Alford, a conservative biblical scholar and dean of Canterbury, advocated a new translation to replace the King James Bible. One of his reasons was the King James' inferior textual basis. When speaking about the Trinitarian formula found in this version's rendering of 1 John 5, verses 7 and 8, he argued that a biblical translator must be willing to set aside even those texts which clearly affirm one's doctrine in favor of what one knows to be proven true. Twenty years later, two Cambridge scholars, Westcott and Hort, came to the firm conclusion that John 7.53 through 8.11 was also not part of the original Greek text. However, their view has not had quite the impact on future translations as perhaps it should have. For a long time, scholars have recognized the poor textual credentials behind the story of the woman caught in adultery in John 7.53-8.11. through 8, 11. The evidence against its authenticity is actually overwhelming. The earliest manuscripts we have with substantial portions of the Gospel of John, p66 and p75, lack these verses. Fourth-century codices, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, which are considered two of the most important New Testament manuscripts in existence today, also lack these verses. When manuscripts P66, P75, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus agree, their combined testimony is overwhelmingly strong that a particular reading is not authentic. Not only do the early Greek manuscripts lack this text, but the great majority of manuscripts throughout the first eight centuries also lack this passage. The oldest manuscript in existence today that contains John 7:53 through 8:11 is the fifth-century Codex Bezae, the most eccentric manuscript still in existence. Although the woman caught in adultery is a story that is found in most of the printed Bibles today, the evidence suggests that the majority of Bibles during the first eight centuries of the Christian faith did not contain it. Even early Christian writers seem to overlook this text. Bruce Metzger arguably the greatest textual critic of the 20th century, noted that no Greek church father prior to the 12th century comments on this passage. Based on external evidence, that is what the manuscripts, versions, and church fathers have to say, most scholars would argue that these verses were definitely not an authentic part of John's gospel. However, textual criticism is not based on external evidence alone. There's also the internal evidence to consider. This is comprised of two parts intrinsic evidence, which has to do with what an author is likely to have written, and transcriptional evidence, which has to do with how and why a scribe would have changed the text. Intrinsically, the vocabulary, syntax, and style look far more like Luke's writing than they do John's. Transcriptionally, scribes, especially later scribes, were almost always prone to add material rather than omit it, especially with a big block of text such as this, rich in its description of Jesus' mercy. One of the most remarkable things about this passage is that it is found in multiple locations in different manuscripts. Most manuscripts that have it place it at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8 in what is now its traditional location in John's Gospel. However, an entire family of manuscripts has the passage located at the end of Luke 21, while another family places it at the end of John's Gospel. Still other manuscripts place it at the end of Luke or in various places in John 7. In most manuscripts of the second millennium, it took up permanent residence in the middle of the fourth gospel. If the question of its literary authenticity, that is, whether it was pinned by John, is settled, the question of its historical authenticity is not. It is indeed possible that these verses describe an actual incident in the life of Jesus and found their way into our Bibles because of having the ring of truth. On one level, if this is the case, then one might be forgiven for preaching the text on a Sunday morning. But to regard it as scripture, if John did not write it, is another matter. The problem is this, if the evangelist wrote his gospel as a tightly woven argument, with everything meeting a crescendo in the resurrection, would he be disturbed that some scribes started monkeying with his text? What preacher would be happy with someone adding a couple hundred words in the middle of his printed sermon as though such were from him? It is remarkable that even though most translators would probably deny this passage a place in the canon. Virtually every translation of the Bible has this text in its traditional location. There is, of course, a marginal note in modern translations that says something like, most ancient authorities lack these verses. But such a weak and ambiguous statement is generally ignored by most readers who might assume that the translators felt it must be authentic since they included it. How then has this passage made it into modern translations? Simply put, there has been a long-standing tradition of timidity among translators. One 20th century Bible relegated the passage to the footnotes, but when the sales were rather lackluster, it again found its place in John's gospel. Although the translators of the net Bible put the text in its traditional place, they did attempt to point out its authenticity problems by including a lengthy footnote explaining problems with the passage and minimizing the font size to smaller than usual. In recent years, Noted agnostic Bart Ehrman discounted the authenticity of this passage in his 2005 bestseller, Misquoting Jesus The Story Behind Who Changed the Bible and Why. Ehrman has achieved vast media and public exposure as one of America's leading textual critics, yet his assertions disturbed thousands of Bible believing Christians who were ignorant of the details of textual scholarship. But most Christian New Testament scholars also believe that this text is not authentic. It should probably be removed from the Gospel of John and relegated to the footnotes. In response to the objection that since scholars are not absolutely sure that this text is inauthentic, they therefore need to retain it in the text, it need only be said that such a policy practiced across the board would dramatically increase the size of modern Bibles beyond recognizable proportions. Including this questionable passage in a footnote is a nod toward its long-standing tradition in Bibles from the second millennium on. Of course, King James only advocates will see things differently. Their claim is that modern translations are butchering the Bible by cutting out major texts. Not only is that quite an overstatement, since only two lengthy passages in the King James Version New Testament are considered spurious by modern scholars, John 7.53 through 8.11 and Mark 16 verses 9 through 20, but it also assumes what it needs to prove. Is it not possible that the King James Version based on half a dozen late manuscripts, has added to the word rather than that modern translations, which are based on far more and much earlier manuscripts, have cut out portions of Scripture. It is demonstrable that over time the New Testament has grown. The latest manuscripts have approximately 2% more material than the earliest ones. Modern scholars are trying to remove the dross and get to the gold. One text that must go, in spite of traditional and emotional attachment to it, is John 7.53 through 811. The best of biblical scholarship pursues truth at all costs, and it bases its conclusions on real evidence, not on wishes, emotion, or blind faith. The widespread inclusion of John 7.53 through 811 in modern translations reflects a faithfulness to the tradition of the text rather than to rigorous historical biblical scholarship and rather than faithfulness to the text itself. When scholars deny evidence and appeal to emotion instead, They are methodologically denying the significance of their own studies.